Well, good morning. Let's pray. We'll look at the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity again this week to uh, wrestle with your word uh, in this kind of context. Uh, we do thank you too for new birth and uh, the opportunity to welcome uh, children that you have blessed us with and we uh, are so grateful for that. We do pray please though that as we wrestle with these words that you've given us that you might uh, touch us deeply with the truth of them, that you might transform and change us by them, that you might give us hope uh, and joy but also humility and, uh, and, and a proper uh, wisdom before you, the great God of the universe and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well there are two things that will uh, emerge from this part of the Bible as we go through it. We're back in Matthew's Gospel, we're working our way through chapter by chapter in this section and it's very much like the other sections of the Gospel of course, it's introducing us to the person of Jesus. And as we go th through this particular part, uh, again what will emerge is we'll see more about who Jesus is and more about who we are. Uh, as we go through the verses, I'm going to offer perhaps it's a little bit more than this, we'll see Jesus progressively elevated there's a sense in which he grows more and more as you go through the Gospels and particularly this part of the Scriptures. Uh, you'll see him more and more uh, expand in his greatness. Um, an astonishing figure of history alone, but an astonishing figure as the Son of God walking amongst us. But at the same time as he grows, you'll see us diminish, be humbled. Now that's not such an attractive image, is it, of uh, religious experience to find yourselves humbled and diminishing as you engage together. Uh, it's not quite what the religious experience of the Western world is pursuing. Most uh, religious experiences these days are only interested in inspiring us and enlarging us and making us more uh, positive about ourselves and so on. And just notice there, actually, I use the word only. Most Western religious experiences today are only about making us feel better about ourselves, inspiring us. Now there is an inspiration to be had in the scriptures. In biblical Christianity there is an inspiration to be had for us. There is something that enlarges us. But that's not only what it does. Biblical Christianity will lift you up, but only after it first brings you down. Only after it first humbles you and brings you to see the truth about who we are, that's the key to being inspired actually. It's unique like this biblical Christianity and Jesus shows us all of this in this particular part of the scriptures. He becomes greater, more superior, more powerful uh, in its best sense and we become or, are, or revealed to be uh, guilty actually and humbled and in all of that though there is true inspiration to be found and I want us to get there because this is why it all matters as, as we're going through all of this that Jesus be elevated and be seen to be who he truly is and we to be seen to who we truly to be truly uh, who we really are that, that we see both those things as we ought who Jesus is who we are there is life there is actually the only pathway to find life now true life now and life eternal these things are deeply important. Let's watch it as we work our way through this text. So uh, if you picked up the context week by week, we're now in the last week of Jesus' life. Matthew chapter 21, um, he has uh, come to Jerusalem. We read about that some weeks ago in church as we went our way through it. He's arrived in Jerusalem 
uh, and kind of come up into the city as the great king there in chapter 21. And this is likely on the Sunday, the, uh, the Sunday before the Friday when he is crucified. So it's only a few days before he dies. This is the last week of his life. And he's come into this city, the city that he's been traveling towards for many months, a city that he knew would be the place of his death. He knew there would be great hostility when he arrived there because this is the place where the leaders of Israel who have been hostile against him from the beginning, this is where they have their seat of power. Uh, this is their place. And it is therefore the centre of hostility, the home of this uh, reaction against Jesus. He now has arrived here and he's probably staying in a small town uh, not far away from the city and he travels each day up into the city. And Matthew records what happens. And it isn't pretty. As Jesus comes into the city day by day, there's growing hostility, growing reaction against him. And increasingly there's a plot to kill him. Um, so the leaders now come to him. Um, have a look, verse 23 is where we're up to. Jesus entered the temple courts. Uh, so another day that he's now arrived into the city, he enters the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? So the things that Jesus has been doing around the Temple Mount, um, uh, clearing the, the temple, the teachings that he's been providing, and perhaps even earlier with his, uh, his various teachings prior to this, his miracles, his healings and so on. By what authority are you doing these things? Um, you know, there's a sense in which the people asking this question, the elders and chief priests, they are the chief priests. They're the ones who sent the charge of being responsible for the spiritual affairs that are happening in this uh, country, in, among this people, among God's people, the Jews. And there's a sense in which they recognise themselves to be in charge. I mean, who gives you, Jesus, the right to be doing what you're doing? Um, you, you, you know, we're the ones with the authority and the power here. You've not come to us. What, where do you get this authority from? Now consider carefully Jesus' answer. It is incredibly insightful and clever. He's attacked in the place where these people have their power. He's come into a, a city that they regard as theirs and he's being attacked by them. But in the smoothest possible way imaginable, he turns the attack back and asserts his own rule and authority in the process. They see it as their city, but here is the true king come back home. By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? Verse 23. Verse 24, Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Now John's baptism, uh, he's talking here about uh, the ministry of a man uh, some time earlier, uh, John the Baptist, whose ministry was uh, 
calling on Israel to repent of their sin and be ready for the coming of God among them, to be ready for the final days when God will finally visit them and to, to repent, to turn away from their sin and get themselves right with God. And he marked that repentance by baptism, by baptising people in the River Jordan. So John's baptism, this activity of him baptising people for repentance, by what authority did he do these things? Um, great crowds went out to John the Baptist. Uh, most of Israel went out to him to be baptised, recognising their need to get right with God and be ready. The Jewish leaders didn't, though. They watched on, they went out to him, but only to critique and review and assess, and they didn't themselves participate in repentance as if they needed to. Jesus asked the question, John's baptism, where did it come from? Look at their response. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all held that John was a prophet. You see what's going on here? This is not a group of people interested in the truth. This is not a group of people who have come to Jesus genuinely asking questions to find out genuine answers, to get information, to fill up their picture on how to understand life, the universe and everything else. This is a group of people actually who are determined to undo Jesus and think by asking their question, they will unravel him. And so they refuse to answer. What emerges actually is in Jesus' question. Jesus asks such a question that it brings to the surface their hypocrisy by what authority they were never interested in the answer and so Jesus says verse 27 they answer Jesus we don't know then he said neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things clearly I'm dealing with a group of people who aren't interested in the truth who aren't coming with a genuine desire to know and understand and so to cast pearls before swine. Jesus refuses to do it. And what emerges is Jesus turning the tables. Do you know, the, the, the heart of the Christian faith is Jesus. Who is this man? It is the critical question and the one the Gospels keep raising for us. Uh, who do you think this man is? Who, who is this man? Let me tell you about how he was born, the fulfilment of prophecies that occurred. Let me tell you about his teaching ministries, his miraculous activities. Who is this man? Who is this man who calms storms, who raises the dead, who speaks about the fulfilment of all ancient prophecies? Who is this man? The Gospels keep asking this question and raise it for us. Um, but really, it isn't the most important question. And in fact, it can be a problem question for us. It can give the impression that it's our opinion of Jesus that's the opinion that matters most. That somehow he's waiting in heaven for us to get him right. But the real Jesus who emerges through these eyewitness accounts, and there are four of them because it matters so much that we understand the truth of who this Jesus is. The real Jesus who emerges through these accounts is one who becomes greater and larger such that we ought properly be asking not who is he but what does he think of us what does he think of us 
the, the, the religious leaders come with their probing questions and so on, not really interested in the answers. Because for them, it's of little account who Jesus is. But as Jesus emerges through the gospel accounts, he becomes everything. Terrifying, actually, in his understanding of them and their heart and their analysis of their heart. I've often wrestled with illustrations on these things. And um, the, uh, I, was <clears throat> I was up the coast a while ago in a place where uh, lots of people come to spearfish, actually. It's a great place to shoot fish and um, there's a man who I've seen for some years there who is a very active spear he'd be out early in the six o'clock in the morning chasing big kingfish and so on and so forth and he'd often go out a long way and um, I tell you this story because I want you to know he's a serious spear fisherman I saw him come in one day and he was often on his own he was a he was a he wasn't some town cream puff guy right he was a he was a tough country man but he he came in one day and he he staggered up the beach and he he fell on his haunches and I, I came down to him. I wanted to find out what the fish were and I came down and I said, what's happened? Are you okay? And he looked up at me and he was white as a ghost. And I said, what's gone on? And he said, he said, I went down deep, the water cleared and there was a four metre great white shark coming at me. And he said, I'm just recovering, shaking. Now, I tell that story because from a distance, it's easy to watch the nature shows and see how beautiful sharks are and love the idea of them and think about how beautiful they are. They're not man killers, they're just beautiful fish and how peaceful and beautiful and so on until you come face to face with one. And when you come face to face with one that's as big as a car, the girth on it, the mouth, the, suddenly everything changes. In one context, they're merely the object of our interest in another context, we're the object of their interest. And it changes the whole picture. You know, from a distance, Jesus is an object of interest. And there's a sense in which he humbly allows himself to be that object. He comes to show us himself. But the real Jesus, the Jesus who emerges through the activity of exploring and understanding and seeing who he is, emerges to be a person of such power and authority and greatness that he's terrifying. What matters is not so much what I think of him in the end, but what he thinks of me. He comes to his city, to the religious leaders, who think that they can tease him and humiliate him and unravel him. But Jesus, with just a deft touch undoes them, brings to the surface what's in their heart. And as this chapter goes on, it becomes obvious what he does think of them and us. And he dismantles them piece by piece. He gives a series of parables and strips away the veneer of their respectability and their religiosity that they've hid behind. And he brings to the surface the true heart and it's terrifying to see and it I dare say it's terrifying for us to watch and it will be for us to see as well. The first little parable that he gives there, um, he speaks to them of, um, well, let me pick it up for you at verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went out to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. 
The father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will. But he didn't. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Well, the crowd answered for Jesus. It's very clear. The first one, the one who said, I wouldn't, but then in the end did. He's the one who did what his father wanted. Jesus actually applies the parable and says, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you, you religious leaders. For John came, John the Baptist, came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. You know, Jesus is making this insightful analysis of the religious leaders that it, it isn't where you start and how you speak that's the key. It's where you end and what you do that matters. You religious leaders, you've presented in your religiosity as being for the Father, wanting to do what the Father wants. But then when the father sends his son or a messenger from his son to call you to action, you refuse to do it. You look good, start well, but end badly. But the great unwashed who become washed, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people that the religious leaders would despise and look down upon, rightly they were despicable. They're the ones, Jesus says, who are entering the kingdom ahead of you. They started badly, rejecting the Father and what the Father wanted. But when called by the Father, they repented, they turned, and they did what he wanted. They repented, and they were marked as those who now sought to follow Jesus. You, are, you religious leaders, you started out making as if you were for God, but you failed to repent when John the Baptist came, when he called you. You know, friends, what matters is not where you start, but where you end. You may have messed up in your life. You've may have, you've made a complete botch of it. You, you have made been as disrespectful as a person as you can imagine. You, you, you may have been someone that um, you know religious people would despise. But where you begin doesn't matter so much as where you end and the key is repentance recognizing the error the foolishness the, the the pride the arrogance and repenting of it turning from it and embracing the mercy of god in the lord jesus christ do you know it's never too late to repent there is another side to that though of course it's never too late for true repentance you can come to genuine repentance on your deathbed. It's never too late. Doesn't matter what your life has been, it's never too late. The Lord God is merciful and gracious and will receive you. The other side to that though is it's rarely the case that late repentance is true. Take heed now to the call of God on your life and turn. Don't trade on the respectability that you've lived with. Don't be like the religious leaders who, in their pride, continued obsessed with their respectable positions and were afraid of what others would think of them. Turn. 
There's the first little parable that Jesus offers that starts to unravel, dismantle the religious leaders and show them for what they are. But there's a second one that's a longer one. It's verse 33 there. It's a landowner who plants a vineyard. He puts a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, builds a watchtower, gets it all prepared and ready and rents it out. He rents it out to some farmers and moved to another place. The farmers work the vineyard with all the provision that the owners provided and so on. And harvest time, verse 34, comes and he sends a servant to collect the fruit, the rent in kind. But the tenant sees his servants, beat one, kill the other and stone a third. Then he sent other servants, more than the first, and the, senate, the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sends his son. They will respect my son, he thought. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come let's kill him and take the inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. You get the picture, it's a very straightforward one. A, a, a landowner who's provided generously and fully for a group of people. Uh, and notice this, he's, he's, done it, he's done it graciously, generously in, in a lovely way in that he's not just given them a quarry to mine, he's given them a vineyard to work that makes wine. He's provided them with the walls and the safety and the watchtower and everything. And he just sends for some of the fruit as rent, payment in kind. But they decide in their pride and arrogance, they want the vineyard for themselves and despise and reject the owner. Verse 40, what therefore will the owner do? The answered crowd says, verse 41, they will bring those wretches to a wretched end they replied and he will rent the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time the crowd the the people listening uh, those who are there they had enough moral sense to appreciate then when someone gives you so much to fail to give anything back is, is a crime of deep significance and worthy of judgment and condemnation well, Jesus applies this one, verse 42. Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. Now, that's a quote from Psalm 118. It's a psalm that um, prophesied the coming of the most significant figure for the people of Israel who would arrive, the one who would be the foundation of Israel or the, the capstone over Israel. But the very key stone that the building needs, the ones who should have been looking for the key stone, the builders, throw it out. The very key stone that's critical to their whole building, they dismiss. Only to find that it is actually the stone that Jesus says in verse 44, will crush them or they'll fall on it. It becomes the capstone, the important stone, the one that's actually, verse 44, dangerous to those who reject it. You know, he is speaking, of course, of himself in all of this. His rejection, the religious leader's rejection of Jesus is him being sent to the cross and him becoming the capstone, the one that crushes all those around, is his resurrection to having authority over all humanity, King of kings and Lord of lords, which makes him our judge. Now, when you hear of all of this, you hear the story of you're listening and you hear the story of the tenants who, 
who kill the son in their pride and arrogance. And then Jesus tells the story of Psalm 118, how one day from ancient Israel's past, there's a prophecy about how the, how the key people will throw out the one that they should have embraced. What should you do if you're a key leader? How should you be listening to this? There's a prophecy that tells you that there's a future group of leaders who will be hypocrites, who will be faced with the true king when he comes and dismiss him, but that king will end up over them and destroy them. How should you listen? What should a truly humble, wise person do who knows the scriptures? Well, you should take pause. Be careful here. Could this be the stone that was prophesied from Psalm 118? But what do the religious leaders do? They know that he's talking about them. They say that. Uh, verse 45. They knew he was talking about them. They're not stupid. But they're proud. And they refuse to let it play its part in their lives. And so they rise up, verse 46, and fulfill the prophecy. Reject the stone exactly as it was prophesied. Now, are you shocked that people would be like that? You know, I kind of am. But that's because I'm naive about human nature. How, how does someone get to that place where there's a prophecy about them doing this very thing and in their defensiveness, they still do it? How do you get to that place? It's pride. It's the perversity of the human heart. And notice this, it's the perversity of the religious people. That's us. It's the power of status in society. It's the power of being afraid of what others will think of you if you reveal yourself to be that person. And every day, every day in our world, it happens all the time. There is so much at stake with the person of Jesus. There is so much at stake. He actually says there in verse chapter 22, verse uh, 13, that those that reject him will be cast into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a terrible image of hell, really. And Jesus speaks of these things. There's so much at stake. And you know what? So many people have heard of Jesus. You might be one listening. You've heard of the things of Jesus. What have you done with him? How have you responded? It's possible that you might have simply dismissed him. Is it pride? Is it laziness? Is it that you just don't think it matters? You know, note again the style of the person that's emerging here in the person of Jesus. He is clever. He is astute. He's insightful. He shines the light on the human heart in front of him, those people. And he claims for himself to be the fulfillment of these Old Testament hopes. He is the stone the builders rejected, who will become the capstone, who will crush all opposition. Now that's not the last parable Jesus offers in this little section. He then tells a story, verse chapter 22, verse 1, of a king who prepares a wedding banquet for his son. Now that's a very special thing to do. We've in our family had four weddings and each time it's a very special occasion to 
to celebrate your children's wedding and you invite friends and family to come because it's so special to you you want people to share in it here's a king for his son he wants to share the celebration and the joy of his son getting married with the great ones around him and so he invites these leaders and rulers to come to the banquet verse 3 in fact they've been invited previously he's now just sending out the note that it's now all ready come and enjoy uh, everything's been prepared the food's laid on verse 4 tell them that have been in, uh, invited i prepared my dinner my oxen fat and cow, cattle have been butchered everything's ready come to the wedding banquet but verse 5 they paid no attention and went off one to his field another to his business they paid no heed to the joy of the king their king now others verse 6 were more aggressive they seized, seized the servant mistreated them killed them the king was enraged. he sent his army destroyed those murderers and burnt their city now there is a little wrinkle here that verse 6 uh, verse 8 the king is determined to have his wedding banquet filled so he sends out to the street corners to invite any and all who would come in the bad as well as the good that his wedding hall might be filled with guests he is determined to have people come and be part of this celebration the, the little wrinkle there is verse 11 a, a man who comes one of the guests who is not wearing wedding clothes he asks how did he get in here without wedding clothes and the man was speechless the king told the attendants to tie him hand and foot throw him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth now what's going on there i take it what's happening is that in the same way that the the leaders and rulers who failed to attend to their king and his celebration because i take it they had so little regard for the king so is the case that a low life who are bad and good who's been invited into the wedding refuses to pay respect to the king by dressing up in the wedding gowns so he he comes along but disrespectfully and Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this it's a place where if you are going to come and be part of it it requires an appropriate honor and respect to the king who is celebrating in this way and Jesus applies all of this verse 14 many are invited but few are chosen that is to say um, uh, the invitation goes out to the world for the cause of Christ to come and know him but such is the perversity of humankind it takes a special work of God's spirit to actually bring the heart to repentance to be transformed to find the respect that we we need to have for this Lord God now there is the chunk that I want to look at with you and what I'm offering is that as you go through this what emerges is a deep and insightful engagement with the person of Jesus again and what you see is the power of the man the otherness of Jesus he is a man among men who, who do you think he is more importantly who does he think we are because as you go through this not only do you see Jesus emerge again as a towering and greater and more impressive figure as the king come to his city 
as the King of Kings who will be given all authority over heaven and on earth, the one that will judge all the living and the dead, the one before whom all humanity will stand condemned and judged, the, the one who is the, the one that crushes, who exercises judge. He emerges more and more to be this towering figure. But also as you go through these parables, this section, you get a deeper and deeper insight into humanity into us you know each piece as Jesus goes along uncovers a deep issue and it's the heart of the religious leaders particularly I mean it is a word to them particularly it's important to appreciate that this is a historical context that uh, when Jesus raises the question of which brother did right what he's doing is he's teasing out the fact that you religious leaders presented as doing right but failed in the end whereas the prostitutes and tax collectors presented as doing bad became repented and actually came good in the end he's talking to their world particularly the tenants when he uses the parable of the tenants he's picking up an image out of uh, Isaiah chapter 5 and Psalm 80 it's particularly referencing Israel as the vine as the vineyard that was meant to produce fruit for the owner for God God is the one who is sent to Israel, servants who are the prophets and eventually the son who is Jesus. Very particular to them. The wedding banquet. The invited guests were obviously the Jewish leaders and the Jews as a whole group. Uh, God then, because of their failure to respond, throws open to even us, the Gentiles. So much of it's very particular to them. Uh, it's to their time. Jesus is provoking the religious leaders. He's putting his finger on their hostility and bringing it to the surface, which makes you wonder why. Why is he doing that? He knows he's going to be killed and he does it. Well, remarkably, because it's only by his death at their hands will he make it possible for forgiveness to come to them. There's an astonishing thing going on through here for Jesus. It is very particular to them, but it's not hard to see the implications for the rest of the world, for us, for all of humanity. Take the tenant story in particular. Yes, it's about Israel. Who is not outraged by the tenant's behaviour? This is one of those occasions where it is worth pausing and... I, 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 I was going to say pause the TV there, but make sure you bring it back on again. Pause the TV and talk to people. Uh, how, how would you feel, how do you feel towards the tenants who have treated the landowner like they have? Are you outraged by their behaviour? The kind of pride that refuses to acknowledge the goodness that they've received from another? That in their pride they want it for themselves and cling to it themselves and reject all messengers that have come? Do you find yourself outraged at that as well? How do you feel about the guests who ignored the delight of their king and refused to participate in his joyous celebration and just went to pursue their fields and their businesses instead? Do you, see the, do you sense the offence they're against? And can you not now start to draw some connections beyond Israel to us and our world? So you think with me about sin. What is sin? Sin is one of those religious words that we've kind of spread out into the rest of our culture in a way to dumb it down. Sin is a word that's been kind of turned into those things you, you know, um, 
it, sin's an object of fun. It's just a little humorous thing so that rich chocolate is a sin. Uh, you, you know, luxuriating in rich things is a sin. It's just a way of making fun of something that you know is not great for you. It's an idea, a concept of little account. Jesus doesn't use that word here, but the concept is written all the way through it. The sin of these people, the tenants, it wasn't how they treated each other. There's no reference, well there is a little bit of a reference to the way the tenants treated each other, they worked they collaborated together, they were, they were working together as a group, they were united. There's something quite wonderful about their horizontal relationships being talked about here. Beautiful and good. But the key wasn't how they treated each other. The sin of these people was how they treated the one who ruled over them. The, the crime of these people was the way they engaged with the one, the landlord, the king. The landlord who'd given them everything and the king who was their king and there is a deeply important insight into the Bible's view of sin sin is first and foremost a vertical relationship sin is first and foremost a betrayal it's a rebellion it's a rejection of the one who has given us all that we have you know, in these passages, sin presupposes an obligation that someone owes to another person. A life obligation. The story of the tenants establishes that. Jesus gives the story to actually establish for the crowd. Here's a group of people who owe the landlord something. That they have an obligation to him, a good obligation. Not, not um, out of fear, but out of love and, and gratitude they should provide. There's an obligation they owe. There's the servants of the king who have his rule over them and so on. There's something owed here. Now that is exactly the point of the whole New Testament towards us. The vineyard is like an image of the world. The New Testament says that God has given all people everywhere life, breath, and everything else he has provided us with a planet that that has everything necessary for life and enjoyment and beauty and good and safety and protection he has given us a world with he's given us life that has richness and diversity about it every morning I wake up it's because the Lord God has given me another day to breathe his generosity and kindness towards us. We have an obligation that is owed, like the tenants owed the landlord. But what do we do with it? As a human race, we have together ignored the giver. We have used his generosity and taken it to ourselves and in many instances done that aggressively but in some instances done it passively it is interesting how in the parable of the wedding banquet you get some who verse 5 simply paid no attention and went off to their other interests others were very aggressive in seizing the servants mistreating and killing but both were guilty 
And here is the essence of the world's sin. We live in God's world. We breathe his air. He has given us all we have. But we either actively or passively dismiss him as a humankind. Now I spend some time here, well because Jesus does, but I spend some time here because if we do not comprehend the massive role that sin plays in the Bible, in, in the biblical shape of, of God's presentation to us, if we don't comprehend the, the massive role that sin plays in biblically faithful Christianity, we will not only misread the Bible, we'll fail to understand what God is doing in the Bible. We'll fail to understand why the work of Jesus, who giving himself up to death on a cross, is so critical. Sin isn't just trivial. It cuts at the very fabric of the most important relationship in, in the universe. <laughs> and it's impossible to overstate this. Sin cuts at the fabric of the very most important relationship, the relationship we owe everything to. It's not your husband, it's not your wife, it's not your parents. It's, it's to the Lord God who has given us life, breath and everything else. We have actively for some, passively for others, rejected him and so made him our enemy. That is why there's a hell. It's why it's real. Because of the outrage the people felt at the behaviour of the tenants to the landowner. Their, their behaviour... The behaviour of the tenants outraged the, the listeners and ought to outrage us. He will, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end for what they've done. When you step back and see with the eyes of God the activity and nature of the human race and the way we've treated our God, we wouldn't treat a king like that. We shouldn't treat humans like that, but to treat the Lord God like that. When our eyes are open to see the guilt that lays upon the world, the shock of biblical Christianity isn't that God judges. That's not shocking then. What's shocking is that he hasn't judged yet. If we only think of sin as a horizontal experience, we, we won't see the seriousness of it. And it is largely how we talk about sin. We talk about sin as weaknesses and mistakes and hang-ups and habits that we don't like and failures of relationship with each other. We talk about sin in this horizontal way as, that, as if that's the problem. No, 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 no. They're all symptoms of the problem. When we see the obligation owed to God in light of his goodness and generosity and our failure to pay him what is owed, honour and thanksgiving, not because he's needy, but because that's how you respond to someone who's been so generous. Sin at its most profound is a vertical relationship. And the outrage of the crowd against the vineyard, the tenants, is the very outrage that will be against the human race. And isn't this us? It was us. And yet, and yet, he is the one that we've dismissed so often coming amongst us to give himself over to death for us. 
But you wonder why Jesus is so provocative with the religious leaders, knowing that their hostility will lead to his death. But he plays up their hostility. He feeds it. He nurtures it. He brings it to the surface so that they will plot his downfall. Why? He wants to bring out what's in their heart to bring them to do what they deeply wanted to do, to, to be angry at their God. He brought that to the surface because it's only by his death at their hands that he provides the means by which those very people can be saved. As the king comes and stands in our place and dies the death we ought to die. Here is the wonder of the Christian message. It's the wonder of God, not the wonder of us. It's the wonder of the greatness and glory of God. Who gave himself over to be killed. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice of atonement for us. Wow. You know, there's a sense in which uh, there's a final chapter to this story about the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the chief priests, that you don't get in Matthew's gospel. You have to go to Acts chapter 2 to get the final chapter of that story. And it is wonderful to go to. It's worth going to just for a quick moment. Come with me to Acts chapter 2. Jesus has died. He's been raised to life again. He's now ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he's poured out the Holy Spirit. And the apostles now begin to preach. And Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. And he preaches it to the very same crowd who crucified Jesus. The very same crowd of tenants who betrayed the servants, the prophets, and killed the son and crucified him. He preaches to this same crowd. And listen to what his final words are, verse 36 of chapter 2. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief stone. And what do the people do? Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift that you will be saved. Even them, and even you, even me, Repent. What matters is not how you start, but how you end. What matters is seeing truly yourself with the insight of Jesus upon your life to see the heart that's really there. The, 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 the pride that would fail to treat the landowner, the God who has given us everything the way we ought, the guilt that's laid heavy upon us. It's important to see these things that we might then cast our eyes and say, what must we do? And the wonderful words of God are, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Because that very stone that we rejected was rejected that we might be forgiven. What love is this? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son for us. You know, you go through these chapters and you see again and again, who Jesus is. 
the greatness of Jesus. And what matters is not so much what we think of him, though it does. What matters is not what we think of him, but what he thinks of us. And what you see in these accounts is a deep issue in the human heart of sin and pride and rebellion. But amongst it all, you see the love of God. Where the Son is sent by the Father to suffer at the hands of us. To save any and all who would repent. It's never too late. Repent. Turn back. Those of us who have, take care with this Jesus. He is not merely an object of study. He is the Lord of the universe that we'll all one day stand before. Take heed to yourselves with him. Be amazed and rejoice at the love that he's displayed for people like us. Have it, I pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have loved so much that you have sent your only son. We thank you for the insight that you bring of humankind. Help us see the lights turned on that we might understand ourselves properly, that sin is not primarily the horizontal concerns, it's actually the relationship with you that we have broken so profoundly. But we thank you that in your love you came for people like us. You sent your son to die at the hands of hostile humans, that you might provide the means of saving those very same humans. Thank you that it gives us such hope and confidence that if we repent and turn, you will love us and welcome us and forgive us. Help us go with great confidence in your love and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.